Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by Gay Vanden Homburg, a senior partner with Partners in Leadership. Gay has more than 25 years of experience in leadership, operating executive, and senior advisory roles in large middle market startup and nonprofit organizations, and has a deep understanding and appreciation for the inextricable link between leadership, culture, and results. At Partners in Leadership, Gay has led large culture transformation efforts with clients, including small private companies and large Fortune 500s. Prior to joining Partners in Leadership, Gay was the CEO of the Johnson Group, a wholly owned subsidiary of Altran, regional president of Vistage International, a leading CEO membership organization, and president of Winning Workplaces. In this conversation, we talk about the work that she does at Partners in Leadership and how they help their clients really define what their culture is. And they have a specific framework they use for not only defining culture, but changing it uh, and changing it for the better and in a way that really drives business results. That was a big key part of what we talked about was not just culture for culture's sake, but culture for driving business results. Uh, I think there's a lot of great meaty stuff in here. I think the frameworks are good for any person who's leading any type of organization. And we talk about how these principles work across organizations too, whether you're leading a business, whether you're leading a nonprofit, whether you're leading a family, whether you're a community leader, the principles of culture and using culture to drive specific results holds true across the board. I hope you like it. Here is Gay Vanden Homburg. And we are live. Gay, welcome to the show. I am excited to have you on and talk about all things leadership and culture here today. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So to kick things off, I thought it'd just be good, like kind of level set. If you could pitch partners in leadership and just explain what it is that you do. All right. That's a good place to start. So partners in leadership works with organizations to help them define and manage their culture so they can achieve the results they want to achieve. So a lot of times people don't think of culture as something that can be managed. And a lot of times people think of culture as something that doesn't impact results. Both of those things are not true. (laughs) Culture can be defined and managed, and it does impact results. And that's where we come in to help clients. Which I really want to unpack that because I feel like culture is a topic that can be a little esoteric, a little hard to define. And so curious on how to make this a little bit more real for people today. So how do you define culture? Yeah, great question too. That is the way that we define it is the way people think and act to achieve the results they want to achieve. So it's still a little bit amorphous there, but if you just think about the way we think and act, the way we choose to think and act in an organization is is culture. And I have a gazillion examples, but that's the clean definition. And what would one of those examples be? Well, I'm going to give you a story if that works. And it's a a little bit of a long story, but I think it'll really explain things. So I was talking with a client last week and uh, he said, you know, we had a customer come into our executive leadership team meeting and he came to talk to us about what it's like to be a customer of ours. And he came in with a scoreboard of here's where you guys are doing well. Here's where you're not. It's a manufacturing firm. And he said, here's where your quality is good. Here's where it's not. Here's when you're on time. Gave him all of that information. And then he said, and you know what? He said, 
I don't think your people are empowered because it takes way too long to make a decision. So this is still the customer telling this to the executive team. And it, it takes way too long to make a decision. And it seems like you have to get so many people involved. And we need you to move faster with higher quality. And so, the, <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. I mean, and so this is- That'll really, wake you up. Well, and it's a gift, right? To have a customer yeah. be able to come in and not just come and complain, but give you some metrics and really give you insights and give you things to think about. And so this team then heard this information and they said, you know, we probably ought to be doing quarterly business reviews with our customers more than we are. And then they started thinking about all the effort that it would take to do that because they're a very matrixed organization. Oh, and we'll, we need to get sales involved and we need to get a product design involved and we need to get all the different geographies involved. And they just, oh my gosh, that's too much work. It'll take too long. Forget about it. And so culturally, this is just hearing this story, this is what I knew about this organization and the way they think and act that probably they don't empower their people close to the front line. Probably they don't put customers first and really say we are a customer-focused, or they may say it, but they aren't really a customer-focused organization. And that's impacting their results. And um, I'll go just a little bit further just to prove the point about results and culture being related. So they use NPS, the Net Promoter Score, around how they measure customer satisfaction. And their customer satisfaction score is not great. And they had another consulting firm that starts with an M come in and actually measure, all right, so if we gained seven points on this NPS score, what would that really mean to us? And the analysis showed that it was $70 million. So what I hope I just told you in that story is that the way people think and act, so feedback from the client was, you think and act in a way where people aren't empowered. It takes you too long to make a decision. You don't have the right eye on quality and turnaround time. And so they're not a customer-focused, agile organization. And the result of that is they don't have great client satisfaction scores. And the result of that is they're probably missing $70 million of business. So hopefully that helps define what I mean by think and act and what partners in leadership means when we talk yeah. about how we think and act. So they had a customer come in and give them that direct feedback, and they decided not to do anything about it. Well, for now, they've decided not to do anything about it because we are just starting to work with them. And this is a beautiful example of something now that we can take and, and start unwrapping for them, helping them unpack this and help them start seeing it. Because, you know, it's a culture is one of those things where you, if you've been living it for a long time and doing it a certain way... You're, it's like a fish in water. You don't really realize you're doing it. So they don't realize how much opportunity they have to improve. They don't realize that. And so that's part of what we're going to be working with them on is helping them see that and then helping them see how it's not only the way people think and act, but the way people think and act are also driven by processes and procedures. And they've got some really heavy duty, bureaucratic, slow moving processes and procedures in the organization that they're going to need to start re revising as well. Yeah, I just finished the book Brave New Work. Oh, I haven't heard that. Have you heard of that one? So no. it's based on the premise that your mental operating system guides what your organization is going to look like. Beautiful. And he talks in the beginning about how the stoplight system in the US is one operating system based on the mindset and the perspective that we need to tell people what to do to uh -huh. keep them safe. Uh -huh. Whereas the roundabout system in Europe is based on an operating system of beliefs that people are smart and can manage themselves if we just give them a system in which to make smarter decisions, right? If we just create a structure for them and then let them own it. And this, what surprised me was that the roundabout system is actually a much safer system leading to less accidents and deaths every year than the U.S. traffic light system. Really? That's fascinating. And yeah. then it gets into all kind, how, all kinds of implications. But that's, I mean, that's essentially what you're talking about, right? Is, is culture is the operating system, or maybe it's a result of the operating system that the leaders approach their organization yeah. with. 
I think you're drawing a great connection there, O'Brien, because it, it is, we sometimes talk about it that way. It's the operating system that, that an organization uses. And one of the things that I really like about what you just talked about is the sort of the, the mindset and the, the beliefs that are underlying that because the belief with the roundabout is, hey, we we can handle this ourselves. The belief with the other one is, to your point, oh, we have to, it has to be top-down managed. And when you work to shift culture, one of the things people often miss is that you've got to operate at that mindset level. We call it operating at the belief level, because if yeah. you think you're just going to tell people what to do, then you're going to spend your life telling people what to do. And you're all, there always has to be a manager around, right? And you want people to know themselves what they need to do so that to have the right beliefs. And so when you shift culture, you got to shift beliefs in order to get the actions to shift. Well, and the, and the, problem with always telling people what to do is that when you stop telling them what to do, they don't do anything. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, there are plenty of people who could be like, well, yeah, well, I like telling people what to do. Yeah. You know, I need to tell people what to do, that's how they're going to do it. Right. And it's like, well, yeah, that can be effective while you're there. But if you ever want to have any flexibility and go and do other bigger, better things, you're going to need your people to be able to do it when you're not there. Yeah. Actually, the way you just articulate that reminds me of a quote that one of my clients used. And he said, it's like when people don't really know what to do, this gives them a compass. When you've defined a culture and people understand what that means and the, and the culture you want to have and the results that you want to get to, you've given them a compass when they don't really know what to do. Now they can stop and think and know to use this as their compass. And so that's kind of what you're saying there. Yeah. So I'd love to unpack the defining piece a little bit more. So do you have like a framework that you pull clients through or do you have, so is there some exercise to help them define principles or like what, when they're defining their culture, like what does that work actually look like? And do they get something tangible at the end? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So the first piece, and I don't want to leave this out because this is super important, is the first thing we do is we help them get clear about the results they want to achieve because shifting culture isn't done just for the sake of shifting culture. It's not defined just for the sake of defining culture. It's done in the context of what are the results we want to achieve. And typically people will call us when they need to make some significant changes or the culture that they've got today, they know is getting in the way and they're not achieving what they want to achieve. They're not growing the way they want to grow, et cetera. And so we start by helping them identify just three to four, what we call key results. Some people call them the critical few, some call them goals. We call them key results very purposely because it's not a goal, it's a result. This is is not negotiable, we got to deliver this result. And then we use that as sort of the North Star for what how the culture needs to be defined and changed. And so step one is is defining those key results. And then step two is we have a particular model we use called the results pyramid. And the results pyramid is what it is. It's essentially a pyramid. If if listeners want to draw it, they can can draw it based on this quick definition I'm going to give them. But it starts at the bottom with experiences. And it says experiences drive our beliefs. And the beliefs that we hold will then drive our actions and those actions then drive our results. And so while that sounds really simple, the point is the, those the bottom part of the pyramid, the experience and the beliefs, that's what you've got it. That's where you start the definition and the and the management because you can't you can't just go to actions for the reason we just talked about with the roundabouts and the and the stoplights. And so we say to them, we get we put them through the first we teach them that the results pyramid and then we say, all right, so let's talk about what are the beliefs getting in the way and what are the beliefs need to be instead. And so I'll just use the example that I started out with, the belief that's getting in the way of the organization I talked about with the customer focus is that we're bureaucratic and don't deliver good customer service. The belief they want to have instead is we put the client first in everything we do. And so that's the belief. So we help them go through belief, what's it getting in the way? What does it need to be? And then we've got a list of, okay, here's what our culture needs to look like to get to these results. And then we help them put those into three to four, what we call cultural beliefs that then are sort of their driving vision for that. It's a one sentence or two sentence statement. And then those statements then define the culture 
that they want to have to get to the results that they want to want to deliver. So it's really unpeeling it to the point of beliefs getting in the way, beliefs we need to have instead, and then putting those beliefs into statements that that help people define it more. And then you communicate that and you roll that through the organization along with you know a number of tools to start managing change. So where where does the experiences come in then? The experiences come in because uh, let me see if I can give you another example of that one. Yeah, I'm going to give you an example of that one. It's a little bit of a long story too, but whenever I tell this one, people go, oh, I get it. So I have a son who's 20. And when he was 13, he wanted to start his own little business doing farmer's markets. He got this idea from, I grew up in a family business in Michigan and my sisters took over the family business, grow these really nice decorative plants. And they used to do farmer's markets in Western Michigan. And when he was a kid, he went, he would go with them sometimes. So when he was in seventh grade, he said, mom, I want to start my own farmer's market. So we found a place for him to do that. And he started selling these nice, beautiful decorative plants. And it was, it was a really nice experience and really successful for him. He he did that for a couple of years. The next year he grew it to, he did, went to three different markets. Now, here's what happened in between that though, is that when he was in seventh grade, my husband and I would always go with him. We made it kind of a family affair. We sat in the back. He's the one that engaged with all the customers. We were just there for moral support or carrying something or whatever. And so we did that for the, his first year. We sort of did it as a family. But again, to be clear, it was his. He was in front. You'll see why I'm being so insistent about this. It was his. He was he was in front in just a minute. So come now it's year number two that he's doing this. And I ended up having to be out of town for work. And so I remember calling him and saying, Peanut, I'm really sorry, but I'm not going to make it to your farmer's market. And I know that we always do this as a family, but I, I the client really needs this and I, I need to make that a priority. So what do you think, O'Brien, that I was thinking that he might say when I said, I'm sorry, Peanut, I can't, I can't be there. Yes, I still called him Peanut when he was in seventh grade. But that aside, what do you think I was thinking he might say? Either, okay, mom. Yeah. Or, you sure you can't come? Yeah, right. Yeah. You've got my mindset there. That's right. Yeah. I was thinking that he might be going like, oh, mom, bummer, you can't be there. Yeah. No, that's not what he said. You know what he said? He said, good, mom. <laughs> And I'm like, well, why do you why why did you say it that way? And he said, because mom, when you're here, you always like to talk to people. And then you tell me that my plants don't always have prices in them. And sometimes you suggest that I rearrange them. And so I'm glad that you're not going to be there because I'm going to do it myself. And so I apparently, unknowingly, but well-intentioned, I'm sure, (laughs) created experiences for him that led to a belief that. I'm just a little too involved, right? Like mom, but out of my business. We had to believe. So that's the experience that I create. I created all of those experiences. I I guess, you know, when I was talking to people, I ran into people I knew. Well, sorry, I shouldn't be talking to them because it sort of took some of the ownership away from him. And so his belief was that you're making this not as much my business. So that summer, here's what I did. I very purposely did not go to his markets. My my husband still went. My husband is more of a type B. I'm a type A kind of driven. My husband was fine just being in the background. I'm sure he didn't tell him anything. And I very purposely changed the experiences that he had with me. And so I didn't go to the market for the first month. Then I went and I got a cup of coffee and I just walked around the market. I walked by his booth and just made really nice compliments. If I saw someone I knew, I made sure that I walked further away and didn't didn't talk to them. And so I very purposely that entire summer created experiences that said, it's your business. I'm not involved. You don't need me. This, is... And so the very last summer, the very last weekend before he went back to school, he said to me, he put put all the plants in the SUV, was ready to go, came in the house and said, hey, mom, why don't you come with us? Let's do this as a family. And I thought, okay, I've shifted his belief, right? It took me a few months, but I shifted his belief. And so that's what I mean by experiences. It's just, we can't help but create experiences, but we sometimes don't realize what we're doing. But our experiences then are always creating beliefs. And those beliefs then then drive the actions that we take and the results that we get from those actions. That is a good story. And so I, pardon me if this is like way too in the weeds, but I'm, I'm curious of not only what the frameworks are, but how to use them. So is the process then let's understand, let's understand the experiences that our people, our people are having and the beliefs 
that those are creating? Or I guess you'd start at say, what what are the beliefs that people have and where are they good and where are they bad? And then we can go down and we can sort of go down the pyramid and root out what are the underlying experiences that we want to keep and what are the ones that we want to change. And then that and then you start to work your way back up to what actions do we need to take to be solving those and then those lead ultimately to the results. Yeah, that's well said. It's so you're sort of cycling through the bottom there. Yeah. To figure yeah. out the the beliefs and and experiences and figuring out how those are all tied together and then you work your way up to correct the actions and those actions lead to results. Yeah. And what I was explaining before, what I was explaining before O'Brien is when we take people through the exercise of the beliefs getting in the way and the ones we want to have instead, then what they've got is they've got four or five, three to three to five, those cultural beliefs. And, and now they know these are the beliefs we need to hold. So now we've got to start creating experiences like this, right? So if the if the belief we, we want to hold as a company is that we work as one team, not in silos, then we got to start creating experiences, which means we might start bringing more people into meetings. It may mean that we revamp a decision-making process on something, but we start creating those experiences to drive those beliefs because those beliefs that come out of this first work that we do with people that they need, they need to hold these beliefs to get to these results. Those are aspirational. That's not the way the organization is operating now. So now to your point, yep, they got to go back to that, the bottom of that pyramid and say, okay, so now what are all the experiences we got to be thinking about creating to drive those beliefs? So those beliefs just become the way we operate. They become our operating system. Yeah. So you are articulating something that I've talked about for a long time because I have talked about it on this podcast too, but I'm involved with a nonprofit called Embark here in Chicago. And it's based on, it's an experiential education nonprofit based in, I think now it's, I think it's up to 19 or more underserved Chicago public school, high schools. And it was created by two teachers, two English teachers down in Englewood, uh, which is on the south side of Chicago. And they were coming to class and they were trying to really reach their students. Like the, the founder, I've heard him give this speech a bunch of times, but he's like, I was bringing it. He's like, I'm connecting Shakespeare to Jay-Z lyrics. You know, I'm, I'm bringing in culturally relevant topics and connecting it to classics. And we're like, I'm trying my hardest here and just nothing. Like we're, I'm just not getting through to people. And one day he was sitting in class and he was eating his lunch and he pulled out a piece of fruit and somebody goes, oh man, what is that? And he said, you don't know what this is? And he turned to class and says, who could tell me what this is? Nobody in class could tell. It was a strawberry. And he said, just like, what, like, how am I ever going to reach these students if they don't even have enough perspective on the world to know what fruits and vegetables are? You know, how, how are we ever going to expect them to live healthy lives and come, let alone come into English class and care about anything that I have to say? And so they went out and they, they raised money and started taking these kids on field trips and they just started going to all different places in the city. I think first they surveyed the students and they found all of these experience gaps. They, like these students had lived in Chicago their whole lives. They were 16, 17, 18 years old never been to the lake, never been downtown, never been in an elevator, never been to a grocery store outside of a corner store. Not all of them, but a significant portion that, you know, it was eye-opening. So they started taking them out into the city and they would do a bunch of pre-work on what to expect. Then they would go have these, these immersive experiences in different parts of the city. And then they would come back and talk about, you know, what they had. And what they did is essentially recreate a belief system. You know, if I'm looking, I'm I can see your pyramid behind you here, so I'm I'm kind of cheating. This is nice, but essentially, what they did is they worked through your pyramid, right, to figure out what are the belief systems that these people have based on their limited experiences, and then how do we go out and create better experiences that shape different beliefs. And what you could, what you saw happening was once they started to create different beliefs about themselves and their role in the city, they started to engage a lot more. And they have now upper 90s percent graduation rates and really high post secondary success rates, whether that's going to college, getting a job, or joining the military. 
And so it's just like I've seen firsthand and I've been very close to the kids, how changing your experiences can change your beliefs and ultimately change your results. And so that was that's a long story there, too. But it's it's not just companies that you're talking about. This is like a core principle of how you get anybody to achieve any new thing. Yeah. is, you know, figure out new experiences that you can give them that change their perspective on the world and get them, you know, give them the tools to get where they want to go. And that's, I, there's a lot of research out now that talks about experiential education being the most impactful. And it's, it's essentially for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. I am uh, touched by your story because I had no idea. I mean, I, I sounds naive on my part, but I thought, gosh, everybody doesn't know what a strawberry is and, and how that then kicked something off. But you're, it, and it's a beautiful example of how this is so widely applicable, O'Brien. And we hear from our clients very often about how they applied it to themselves and to their family, and, and it had an impact on their personal lives. So yeah, it doesn't just have to be for a business. It can be, you can apply it to your family. You can apply it to a not-for-profit. The key point that you're reinforcing here is that, you know, you can't just tell people to change. You can't change policies and all of those things without shifting beliefs. And you're pointing out how powerful it is to have experiences that shift those beliefs. And I mean, 90% success rate after. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's very hard to recognize your own blind spots and your own beliefs that are holding you back and, and to recognize that some of your beliefs are holding you back. And it is, that is a very difficult thing to be that one, to be that self-aware and then two, to really accept that you hold some beliefs that, you know, you might construe as negative, right? It's, it's a hard ego blow. How do you help your clients through that process of really understanding and shining a light on what some of those beliefs are that might be blind spots to them? You know, there's a couple steps to it, um, and they're really pretty simple. One of them is to to start out with, we just call it diagnosing this situation, right? And so we have a, we call it the culture advantage index, and we survey a group of people and get a sense from them what they think is working and not working. Then we'll do some phone interviews and we get a sense of that. And so it's really about listening to what the organization is trying to say. And we listen and get that feedback through those formal means of, of interviews and an index. But we, you know, we also watch and listen to stories like the one I like the one I just told you. And so then we help them use that information to, to, to start making the changes. The, that piece is sort of the easy piece, right? It's like pointing it out. Here are some things you need to shift. The harder spot is when you're actually creating the wrong experience on a day-to-day basis, right? And so that's where one of the most powerful tools, one of the most simple, but one of the most powerful is is feedback, you know? And it's not um, giving people feedback that's the powerful piece here as much as asking for feedback. And so that's our approach is that if you really want to be proactive in shifting the culture, you want to play a role in this. And we believe everybody needs to play a role, right? It's leader led, but this is something that everybody needs to understand and know is that you make a practice of asking for feedback regularly. And it's not a sit down for 10 minutes and have a long conversation. Feedback is not that kind of feedback. It's it's feedback about, all right, let's just say that we have a cult, we came out of this, the work we did to say, one of the cultural beliefs we have to have to drive the actions and results we want is back to, I'll pick the easy one, is that we have to operate as one team, not as, a, as, not as silos. It, asking for that feedback can be as simple as coming out of a meeting and saying, hey, what feedback do you have for me around how I involved everyone in that decision? And asking for that feedback starts to create a whole array of things around the culture. It's a way to start building relationships. It's a way to build self-awareness. It's a way to build trust. And when we teach people to, to give both appreciative and constructive feedback, and when an organization starts getting really good at that, that's when some of that, what you call the hard stuff, which it is, that's when people start seeing it because people are starting to, to tell each other and because, because we're asking for it. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but it does, but I've got some follow-ups to it Okay, because I agree, but I could imagine that that wouldn't just play out like a fairy tale. You know, it's not like, oh, I started asking for feedback and suddenly 
you know, we lived happily ever after. Because if you have a crummy culture, it's often because you've been a crummy leader. And so to start suddenly asking for feedback, like there's probably still a bunch of issues around psychological safety and people's comfort in sharing with you that needs to be addressed first. So how do you suggest that somebody who's maybe been influencing a negative culture can start asking for feedback in a way where they actually get the real feedback that they need and people aren't just intimidated, you know, and either give them half answers or just tell them, oh, um, no, I thought you were good. Yeah, right. That's a great question. And it's, a, it's a, to your point, it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a process, right? Because if as a leader, let's say that I'm, I'm the leader that has created a lousy environment, if I can get somebody to give me some feedback, and maybe I find a way that one-on-one, somebody that I trust, or you know, maybe it's my, maybe it's my assistant, or maybe somebody. There's got to be one person in the organization, right, that I can get to give me feedback. Then what I've got is a morsel that I can start building on. And so then what let's just say that I asked for feedback and somebody said, Yeah, you know what? I know that you try, but you're really critical. You're a critical leader and you don't give enough, you don't give enough positive reinforcement to people. So then what I can do is is two things. One is the next time I'm meeting with my team or I have an opportunity in front of a larger group, I can say, you know, I asked for some feedback and here's what I got. I got um, feedback that I don't do enough positive reinforcement and I actually show up critical. And so I want to let you know, here's what I'm going to do about it. I really appreciated that feedback. Here's what I'm going to do about it. And then you got to follow up and do it, right? You got to start. And and then you might want to even put a little caveat in there. Look, I'm not going to be perfect from day one, but I'm going to start working on this piece. And I want to ask you all to help me. Give me feedback. When am I doing it well? And when am I not doing it well? And if you've got that morsel to start with, and then you just, you tell the story about how somebody gave you that feedback and, you know, they're still alive to... To, to be there and how you really appreciate it. And then you show that you're actually changing and doing something about it. That starts the wheel turning. And then others see, oh, wow, the leader's doing that. Maybe I should be doing it too. And that starts building some momentum as well. There's some ripple effect. So it doesn't happen overnight. But you know, one of the things I do is I, I will feed somebody something as a starting point. Like, like, let's just say I knew that I was a little bit critical. I might go to somebody and say, what feedback do you have for me around how I show up, you know, giving both appreciative and constructive feedback? Because, you know, I think that maybe I end up being a little bit critical. I think maybe I'm kind of, I come across critical. And so I feed them a little something, which is a sign that, ooh, yeah, okay, maybe I could, maybe I can reinforce what they just said. Yeah, that's actually true, right? And so sometimes you have to do a little, do use some of those techniques but get one piece of constructive feedback and use that to start the cycle. Show that you're actually doing something with it. Yeah. And that you really appreciated it, right? That it was something that you understood was difficult for somebody to share with you, but boy, you appreciated it that they moved out of their comfort zone to share it with you. Yeah. I like that. One of the things that I've noticed about feedback is the most important feedback I've received usually makes me the most angry or frustrated or exasperated. Like if, if I immediately have a, a strong negative reaction, I have found that there's usually a lot that needs to be unpacked in whatever I've just either heard or experienced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very self-aware of you because I think you're right on. I think that's I think that's human nature, right? It's it's human nature to just go, that's not true. You know, you put up a filter and it's not true. Yeah. 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 Or to be like, oh yeah, well, F you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And and you know, you can get defensive or you can say, well, you don't understand, blah, 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 blah. And I that only very recently have I started to try to do this, but I've like in the last couple months tried every time I feel that. To be like, okay, what is the truth in here that I need to understand? Like, even if, even if it's me getting mad at somebody else, like anytime I get really upset, I'm like, okay, what is it about me that's making me mad here? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it is, you know, it is a lot the other person, but I find that there's always something in there that I screwed up or that at least I could have done better. And I, I don't say this to say that I'm like super self-aware and like this great version of myself, but like I'm just recognizing 
that there's a lot more work that I can do on myself. And it's like, I'm just trying to like sit with that uncomfortable feeling. And man, is that hard? It's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. But that's so good, O'Brien. And what you just articulated is so good. Like, could you imagine if every leader did that, that they recognized, oh man, somebody just said something to me and look at how I'm reacting. Oh, that this is about me. I need to reflect on that. Right. Can you imagine if every leader did that? I mean, you're 10 miles ahead of many leaders just by articulating what you what you just did, right? Because it's I don't know. feels like I'm far behind. No, I, this is human <laughs> nature, right? This is when we teach people this feedback tool, the the one thing we we say is that at, when you're getting feedback, all you do is you say thank you for the feedback, right? It's not, you don't go into a lot of questions. You don't go into defensiveness as human nature. Get your mind ready to receive appreciative and constructive feedback and just say thank you for the feedback. Because if you go back to that pyramid that we talked about, you've given someone an experience. And so now they have a belief. And the real question you want to ask yourself is, is that a belief I want them to have? So it's not about me, right? It's not, am I right or wrong? Or are they right or wrong? It's about, hmm, they just shared a belief with me. When I think about what I want to accomplish and how I want to show up, is that a belief I want them to have? That's the key question. Because they're going to they're gonna have it regardless whether you think it's right or wrong. And so then you get to decide, if that's not a belief I want them to have, then I got to go back and I got to shift some experiences. Yeah. It's not about what's true. It's about what's their belief. Yeah. Really well said. That's yeah. Really well said. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've thought about that because I've, I've, again, that's an easy reaction, right? Where somebody responds differently than you intended, you know, or takes your message or something you said or did with a different intent. And you're like, you know, it's so easy to be like, well, that, I mean, that wasn't my intent. That's not what I meant, you know? And so like, come on, let's just move, let's move beyond this. But if that person is receiving it that way, there's, there's some repair that you have to do there. And it might not be, you know, falling on, it might not be totally falling on your sword and like taking the other person's position, but there's definitely like some repair that needs to be done in that relationship. Yeah, that's right. That's that's a really good way to say it. It's it's their belief. And so if you're okay with them believing that and whatever impact that has on your relationship, fine, don't do anything. But if you want something different, then then you need to take accountability for shifting the experiences. Yeah. How have you trained yourself to be better at taking feedback? Well, you know what it is? It really, it's like muscles. It's like you practice it a lot. And at Partners in Leadership, because we teach this, we do it too. And so I think I'm much better at taking constructive feedback than I used to be, only because you start building the muscles. And when you start building the muscles and people give you constructive feedback and they do it in a way that really is well-intentioned, right? It's not, it doesn't come across negatively. They're not trying to hurt you. They're not trying to do anything to discredit you. They're really doing it out of good intentions. When you get constructive feedback that way, and you get it over and over and over again in a feedback-rich environment, you start building the muscles around it. And it's a really, it's a good thing. So that's what I, w- I would say is if if I'm somebody listening to this podcast, I think one of the most powerful things people can do is create a feedback-rich culture and where you're asking for feedback, right? It's not always about, it's not always about giving the feedback that's most important. It's about asking for it because then that that starts things going and that starts building trust. And I, you know this, O'Brien, but so many organizations we work with, just that fundamental thing of trust is missing. And people will often say to us, well, I, we're not comfortable doing that feedback thing because we we don't have a lot of trust here. And I say, well, then feedback is what you want to do because you've got to start. It's a, it's a tool to build trust. And so, yeah, so that's my long answer. I'm such a nerd for like, what are the principles and then how can they apply? And so like you were talking about business and I went to that, you know, the high school experience and I, you know, what you're talking about with the feedback rich environment, I mean, that's true for like high functioning families. It's true for high functioning communities, for high functioning companies, nonprofits, like there's like that principle applies because anywhere you get groups of people who are forced to interact together all the time and do things together, there's going to be a culture, right? I guess. And then there's going to be people who get sideways and need to work things out. And so it's what that feedback is how we all get better together, no matter what group of people it is. 
That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it applies everywhere. It's like we're all humans. If there's a human involved, this applies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's why I enjoy this podcast so much because when I was thinking about putting it together, you know, I was trying to blend a number of different things from my personal and professional life and interests. And I woke up one morning, I don't know if I've ever said it on here, but I woke up at 4 a.m. one morning, it's like popped out of bed and was like, people business. Every business is a people business. And, you know, the business of people is what life is all about. And so I would just like, is such a fun thing for me as a, a nerd about this stuff to explore is like, what are all the, what are those base principles that you can take and apply to work and apply to your family and apply to your own self? And, you know, what are those, those core principles going to be and how do you use them to be effective? Yeah. Good for you. Back to what you were saying about the environment where they say trust is missing. How do you build trust? What goes into building trust? So I'm going to sound a little bit like Brene Brown here for a second, but you know, I I think I love Brene Brown. Yeah. She's good. Isn't she? I just, I think this vulnerability thing is really big. I think that you've got to, you've got to be willing to be vulnerable. And when you're being vulnerable, people start, start to just not the total solution, but people start trusting you. And I think if you think, if you show up as someone is arrogant, has all the answers, self-serving, you're not going to get that. But if you can be vulnerable and be authentic and be other focused, then you start building, then you start building trust. It's a one by one thing, right? A person by person thing. As some people would say, oh, the way you build trust is you just do what you say you're going to do. No, that's not nearly enough. It's really about, it's at a much deeper human level. And I think vulnerability is part of that. Interesting. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody say that, but it, I mean, it definitely makes sense you know, that it's not just doing what you say you're going to do. Yeah, that's, yeah. How do you define vulnerability? Like what's the right level of vulnerability and and how do you define it? Because I think that's another term that it's makes some people uncomfortable. Yeah, it definitely does. You know, I wish I had the Brene Brown definition because I'm sure hers is going to be better than this. But when I think about vulnerability, I think about showing up in a way that, in a way that where you're willing to, uh, show where some of your bumps and bruises are, where you're, where you're so not perfect, where you're, where you're human, where, where you may, you know, where you may have some pain. I think that's vulnerability is when you're revealing some things about yourself to others and you're a little bit uncomfortable about it. That's probably vulnerability. Now, maybe some, some are really good at and at it and they aren't uncomfortable with it. But I think in general, if you're totally comfortable saying it, then you're not being vulnerable anymore. <laughs> yeah. I actually saw a Brene Brown quote either today or yesterday, and I'll get it. I won't get it exactly right, but it basically said vulnerability doesn't mean not having boundaries. Yeah. Right. So I think that's a big misconception is that you have to just be open kimono and suddenly share all your deepest, darkest fears, but it's not, it's just about, choosing to be a little bit more human, I think, in some way. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's Brene Brown's, you know, why she's been so successful is that she's just human. But yeah, I think I, I said that too, I heard something too. Yeah, it's not, you're not spilling your guts all over. That's not what vulnerability is, right? No, it's, but it's, it's knowing when to show that you're not, not perfect and that you have some issues and that you're human. Yeah. yeah. Do you think there's a difference or I guess, what is the difference in your mind between vulnerability and humility? Because those are two words that get brought up a lot on here. I'm just curious if you think there's a nuanced difference to the two. Yeah, great thought. I think the answer is yes, there is a difference between the two because you can be humble, but not vulnerable. You know, to me, humility is where you're you're not bragging, you're not taking credit, you are, yeah, I don't know, I'm not going to be very articulate here. But yeah, you're 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 humble. It's not all about you. Vulnerability, on the other hand, is is a place of some some level of discomfort and revealing something. And with humility, you don't have to reveal things, right? You can just be, you can do something different with humility than you can vulnerability. That's a really good question. If I had more time to think about that, I would have a, an articulate answer, but I'm going to- I think you're on the right path for sure, because I've had a couple of people come on and define humility as the willingness to accept that you 
have a lot more to learn and a lot further to go. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's diff- that's different than vulnerability, which is being open and sharing about yourself. Mm-hmm. And sharing difficult things, right? What might what others might call difficult. It's not like I've got four kids and live in the suburbs. It's yeah. No, I went through something difficult and here was the lesson that I learned from it. And here's some of the scars that are still with me on it, you know, yeah. and, and here's what it means to now how I lead, right? I, I'll give you a story that this is an example, of, I think, of vulnerabilities that when I, I was running a finance and accounting consulting firm and I was promoted into that role when the founders sold the business and they had had another CEO in, but it, he just didn't work out and they decided we needed to promote somebody from within and they promoted me and I was extremely green and had a lot to learn. And it was, I'd love to go back and do that job over again now because I learned so much more. But when I go now and, and tell people stories about how I showed up as a leader, like I would sometimes say stupid things like, you know, this isn't a democracy, or I would I actually want somebody that worked for me, actually someone you know, is one, is one of the people that opened my eyes, just like, hey, you're losing the hearts and minds of, of the team because I was so results focused, right? I was just all about results because I was a new CEO and I wanted to prove that in this new environment, we were going to achieve results. And when I tell that story, frankly, it still, it still really hurts because I, I was not a great leader. And, but I tell people that story so that they can see that you know, leaders make mistakes and, and you can learn from it and you can move on and you can be better at it. But it's not a terribly comfortable story for me to share. But I, I don't want people to go through what I did with or did or think that they, you know, that that they're bad people because they don't they're not the perfect leader. So yeah, I heard somebody the other day say, "I am so so bad with quotes," but I like I conceptually remember. I heard somebody the other day say something to the effect of, "Your past isn't what defines you; it's what." It's the lessons that you have learned to get better. Something along that line where it's like, just because you, you were that leader in the past doesn't mean you are that leader. It means that's how you learned to be a better leader. And I think so often it's hard for us to take feedback because it's hard to admit that we're flawed because suddenly that becomes a full character judgment rather than a learning opportunity to get better. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's, good it's hard to reconcile that. Yeah, but it's it is actually good. But I, I think my theory here is, and I just this is a, just a new theory right here right now is that if you can talk, if you can be vulnerable about it, then that means that you have really learned and you're ready to share with others. That's what it's about, right? That's an example of of having the past not define you, and but instead have it be something that you can now use in your favor and in the favor of others and in service to others. That, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Hot take here on the people business podcast. <laughs> I like that. One more question regarding your work. And then I've got a, just a, one or two other sort of more general questions, but the results piece of this, how are you helping your clients either track or target specific results once they start implementing this work? Because this is, it's great, sounds great, but I imagine they want to see the results, right? So how are you helping them track those results and tying them back to this work? Yeah, great question. So there's two ways that typically come into play. One, I would call it, there's some leading indicators and there's some lagging indicators. So I mentioned that we start by helping them define like the three to four results that they want to achieve. And, and that's the lagging indicator, right? If, you, if you're managing culture and aligning it with your strategy, then, then you should be achieving these results that you, that you aligned. And, if, and so that's one way to measure it, right? Is, is, are we getting the results that we said we wanted to get by managing culture? But that's lagging, right? So there's, you need some leading indicators to see if you're doing the right thing. And so there's a couple, there's a formal and an informal way to do that. One of the formal ways is back to that culture advantage index that I talked about. So, and, and, and interviewing people. So there's, there's a culture score that we start with when people first take that. So we do that at the very beginning of an engagement. And then six months later, we will measure that again and look at where we're making progress and where we're not making progress. So that's more of a leading indicator. 
then there are some informal things around progress and results. It's like, are people, are people starting to use the new language? Are you seeing people ask for feedback? Are you hearing people give more recognition? Are you hearing more stories about the things that are, are working? And so that's sort of the informal piece. But the way to think about it is leading and leading and lagging indicators and measuring, doing it in both a formal measurement kind of way and also in more of a qualitative way. Thank you. What are you sick of talking about? What am I sick of talking about in the context of this work or just? Yeah, I guess in the the context of work and business, the work you do in, in business in general, is there anything that you're just like, God, I'm so sick of talking about X, Y, Z? You know what? I would say there's nothing that I'm sick of talking about in it that that I would falls immediately in that category. But I will say there's what I struggle with is, and this probably has some of my blind spots in it, but I struggle with people that don't understand that culture is something that's impacting their results. They think it's the soft stuff and they don't see that the way we think and act every day is impacting results. That So I, I don't have anything I, I, I'm tired of talking about, but I probably am a little bit tired of dealing with people that don't get it. I'll just say. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> what are you most excited to be talking about these days? You know what? There's something that just came to mind, and I'm just starting to talk about this more, and, and that is linking purpose to all of this work around culture, because I think it's important to the Gen Z world. I, I'm not a Gen Z. I'm a baby boomer. But you know what? When I got clarity on my purpose, it just shifted a lot of things. And I think when organizations can get clear about their purpose, and then they can think about, all right, well, what does that have to do then with our strategy? What does it have to do with our culture? And importantly, how do we then help people link their work every day to that purpose and to something that's just bigger than making money or bigger than achieving this goal. I think that is really something interesting and inspiring. And I want to start doing more of that with the organizations I work with. And so that's my answer. Yeah. Well, and I like what you just said. We said, you know, once I found my purpose, things got easier. And that is something I think people don't talk enough about or realize enough and it's there's some work that we've done with a leadership coach that we work with at Lockton, where I work, and he's all about defining your your core and and who are you? What do you believe about the world? What do you love to do? What are the names you call yourself? What are your values? You know like that those types of things, and really getting clarity on those things, those core elements of who you are, and because when you do it just makes living easier. It's like, you know where your lines for right and wrong are. You know where the things are that you want to commit your time to versus say no to. And you just, you don't have to sift through it or spend as much mental energy sort of like dealing with the noise. It's just much easier to say, yes, no, I'm going to go this direction. I'm going to respond this way to this person. I'm going to go, you know, support these causes. It just, it does like makes life easier in a way. Yeah, I think you're right. And and I don't know, are you seeing are you seeing more people talk about purpose or have clarity of purpose? I, I feel a little bit like, okay, I figured out when I was, you know, in my mid-50s, I sort of figured out my purpose. And I I wonder, I mean, I wish I would do, had done that sooner. And I'm wondering if more people are doing it sooner. What do you think that's happening? Do you think more people are getting that? It's definitely a topic I've seen talked about a lot. So it's definitely getting attention and lip service. I think it's really hard to define. And it's another one of those things that is so different for so many people. I've been working with this leadership group for over three years now. And part of it is defining our purpose. You do the core work to figure out who you really are. And then you use that to figure out what what your purpose is. And and I'm still struggling with it. And I, I admit it to the group all the time. Uh, it's sort of become, they're probably all sick of hearing me say it, but I like, I'm getting closer to it. And I generally, I, I know what about my work lights me up now. And I'm much, it's much easier to do things that light me up, that give me energy. You know, I, I know those things. So it's defined in a much better way. But as far as like, what is my one underlying purpose for being put on this planet? I, I think it can be hard to define. Yeah. Well, and I, I do think it changes over time. I think it yeah. can change. 
or it could be multiple things. I think that's kind of what I'm finding with myself is my my wife said it the other night. Um, she and I are very different. She's a, a ballet dancer. And mm. so she has gone through her life singularly focused. I have gone through my life as a jack of all trades and have sort of built my identity around exploring all the different facets of myself. And so I really struggle with defining a singular purpose. And she actually said it the other day that I'd never been able to articulate, but she said, you know, I, you just like to explore all the different facets of yourself. And I was like, well, maybe that is my purpose. Like maybe there's something there where it's like, you know, I'm here to explore all the different avenues and, and make an impact in as many ways as possible. And so, you know, that's a little different than the, the singular focus, but it is one way to sort of encapsulate all the different parts of my life. I think as long as you're doing the work on a consistent basis and reflecting on it, you're at least moving in the right direction. And whether you're ever able to articulate your one true purpose or not, you're going to be doing things that bring meaning to your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's really well said. And I think I think what I'm picking up from what you said, O'Brien, is that that over time, there are different ways, too, that you can operationalize it, right? So there may be something that is consistent, but right today, you may be applying it here. Tomorrow, you may be applying it there. 10 years from now, maybe you're going to be the person that helps others explore all the different aspects of their life, and you're going to take the skills that you've learned to do that. So there's there's lots of different ways that it can manifest itself, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that Simon Sinek talks about that in in Start With Why. And I think he used uh, Bill Gates as an example. And he talked about how, you know, his mission at Microsoft was to get a uh, PC in every home and and to empower the world that way. And just what what that would do to revolutionize life and society if everybody had personal computing. And now he's doing the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And his mission is different. But if you look at the theme, right, again, back to like, if you look at the base principles, it's kind of similar. Like he's looking at global society and figuring out what are the two or three things that they can target in that's going to improve human society on a grand scale. And, you know, they've focused in on sewage and sanitation, female literacy, and I think one other that they say, you know, if we can if we can solve those problems, that just lifts everybody up, just like the PC, you know, lifted everybody up, getting a PC in every home. So it's it is interesting, and and sometimes you can only do it in looking in reverse. But that's where I think is as long as you're doing the work to hone in on yourself, you know, you'll always be doing things that that align somehow, and then you can look back when you get enough experience and say, oh yeah, no, I think it is this theme or that theme or whatever. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think as long as you're having the conversation with yourself, it's it's important so that you can do exactly what you were saying earlier is, is get clearer about, I don't want to spend time on this. I want to spend time on this because it energizes me. And then if you translate that into how it impacts corporate culture, you know, you've got people that are more engaged. You've got people that are, are happier doing the work that they're doing. And then when that happens, you end up with better results. And so there's just, a, there's a, all of these things are sort of interconnected, I think. Yeah. And I think there's a falsehood too that if you do figure this stuff out, that suddenly you're, you know, back to, you know, you live in a fairy tale, you know, it's happily ever after. And that, you know, life's always hard. Life's always a slog. It's just, I know the direction I'm slogging in. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's just easier to sift through the noise and pick a direction and swim or hike or slog or whatever analogy you want to use. But life is still messy and you still screw up and you, there's always still stuff to learn. And so I think, you know, it's, I, I always feel a little weird talking about this kind of stuff because it's easy to come off like, oh, I've got it all figured out because I've done all this work and, you know, great for me. But it, I mean, that doesn't mean that life's, oh, gosh, it, no. that life's easy or that I don't screw up all the time or that, you know, I don't also get it wrong. It's just like, I think there's a lot of value to doing the work to make it as good as it can be. Yeah. I'm I'm struck by, by a belief that you just articulated so clearly and confidently, which is life is hard. I agree with you. I, I have a feeling that there are lots of people who, who would not agree with us, O'Brien, that life isn't hard. That, and so I just wonder what, I mean, that's a belief, right? It's not right or wrong, but I think, I think life is, I think life is hard too, but I, I think there are a lot of people who would disagree with that. Yeah. Oh, I think, 
So this gets into another philosophy and, and belief of mine. I'm a big fan of Stoic philosophy, which says that you can, you know, the only thing you can really control are your own thoughts and actions. And I, I do think life is hard and life is always a slog and you're always going to deal with the messiness. Maybe, maybe it's not hard. Maybe it's just a mess in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, saying it's hard or saying it's a mess, like it's, it's one, it'd be very easy to just be like, oh, it's so hard. And I'm going to toss my hands up. But I think you can also own your reaction to that. So you can let the fact that it's hard and that it's messy totally stop you, or you can just acknowledge that it is and, you know, continue to move on and deal with the messiness and and the hardship and not let it emotionally tax you. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. And some of some of us don't want easy, right? We we like the challenge in, of having um having a uh, call it hard or messy, right? Like if my life were easy, I'd feel like this is boring. I, I need need some variety. I need some challenge. So I don't know. I was just I was just struck by your statement. You were you were clear and confident about it. Um, and so I was just digging into the belief there a little bit. <laughs> oh no, thank you. I, I like that. Um. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I've taken up more of your time than you had offered originally. So I, I appreciate you being generous with your time and your perspective here. I really love digging into the culture stuff because it's stuff that I talk about with my work every day. I've learned a lot. I'm going to go back and listen to this again and, and take some more notes just on how to articulate this stuff and the, the impacts of culture and how to define it. I think this is really good. So, Gay, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. You do a great job interviewing. So you made it really easy and comfortable. So thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Hey, folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.